Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Danny Gitchings. On today's program, we're talking about one of the most prominent stories in the news over the past week, the murder of socialite Abby Choi. Not so much the case itself or the grisly details that have emerged, but about the collective fascination over the crime and other cases like it. Why are people so interested? Could even reading about such crimes be traumatic? How can we deal with it? And is the media partly to blame? As always, we want to know what you think. But unfortunately, we had some technical issues yesterday that prevented us from reading out your comments on our discussion. But we should have that all fixed up for you this morning. So please leave us a message as usual on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Or email us at backchat at rthk.hk. Better yet, call us on 233-88266. That's 233-88266. And we will be reading out some of the messages we weren't able to get to yesterday later on in the program. But first, let's get to our main topic this morning, the murder of Abby Choi. And joining us for the first segment of our discussion this morning, we have on the line Dr. Adrian Lowe, who's the president of Hong Kong Association of Psychology, and also uh, Dean Cox. Dean Cox is a senior journalism lecturer at Baptist University, and will also shortly be joined by Sharon Fast. Sharon Fast is a senior lecturer and deputy director at the University of Hong Kong's Journalism and Media Studies Centre. Good morning, Dr. Lowe. Hi, good morning. And uh, good morning, Mr. Cox. Good morning. Thanks for joining us uh, on the program this morning. Um, now I have a, a Facebook message here from our listener, Marcus, and uh, he, he's wondering why the police took so long to find body parts in a small typo village house. Um, um, well, actually, Marcus, uh, this was uh, explained by officers earlier. Basically, it's uh, to help preserve evidence at the site for forensic experts to do their work. And uh, I hope uh, that answers your question. Um, now, a uh, Let's go to Dr. Lowe. Um, Dr. Lowe, you just heard Marcus's comment, and uh, he's obviously not the only one interested in this case. Generally speaking, there are many people interested. Uh, there's a lot of talk about it. Um, what is this fascination about uh, serious crimes? Uh, well, I'll, I'll just I'll probably share from the psychological aspect, yeah, because I'm a psychologist. Um, people have been asking me, you know, uh, about the case, you know, what, what, what exactly is the minds of the of the um, say the murderers, right? Or, but I think uh, we can also look at it from a different point of view. Like if we if we were actually to scan the brains, you know, of the of the of the mur- of murderers, not just in Hong Kong but globally, you'd probably you know from a neuroscience perspective, you can see uh, some of their uh, brains, you know, showing up abnormal, abnormally. Like for example, you probably heard of the prefrontal cortex, you know, the prefrontal cortex. Uh, uh, the functions probably have dropped, you know, and that would, you know, uh, cause them to have the inability to uh, function well in this area, like uh, whether they're able to uh, think of consequences, for example, um, able to analyze, you know, what the pros and cons, you know, of, uh, of, of things, you know, so this is to do the executive function of the frontal cortex. Uh, Dr. Lowe, sorry, you're sounding very like a a potential defence witness there, though, sort of arguing that uh, they they have um, uh, they've diminished capacity and that they 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 weren't sort of fully responsible or known what their actions were when you say that kind of thing about their their brains. Yeah, exactly. Because uh, when when their brains are not functioning well, you know, uh, they will probably won't see. They they probably don't even have a feeling of guilt. You know what I'm saying? When 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 some of the uh, say the temporal lobes. The left region of temporal lobes is uh, not functioning but properly. This is just uh, speculation. You haven't examined them in any way, have you? 
I mean, I, and I there are many people who commit gruesome murders <clears throat> whose whose brains are functioning right. perfectly normally. So how, how do we know necessarily <laughs> it's different different these? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. We have to validate these, right? Well, um, if it is actually based on research, and if we look at the brains of murderers um, historically, um, in the U.S., for example, and there were there were uh, these regions showing up, you know, in the brain scans, you know, of the murderers, and as I mentioned, it's the left temporal lobes that is uh, not functioning well, as well as the uh, frontal cortex. Right. And, and Dr. Lee, you're talking about uh, murderers here, but what about uh, just normal people? Why are they so interested in, in uh, reading about these cases or hearing about them? Ah, right. Okay. Well, um, I think that's also a, um, I mean, that's maybe the human side of <clears throat> nature that we are always, <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, they're always, you know, uh, curious about things, you know, trying to know exactly uh, why things happen, you know, um, maybe the logical side of us, you know, the left, again, if you're talking about the brain region, is the, <clears throat> the logical side of our brain, we always want to know why, why things happen like this, and we want to know, uh, know answers, you know, when things uh, happen. But it's uh, it's that humans are drawn to more gruesome crimes. Like I mean, there's studies overseas, and of course, you've had many horrendous um, uh, murder. We had them in part in our past in Hong mm-hmm. Kong as well. But if we look around the world, there are there are many examples. The examples in Britain, and there is something about more more gruesome crimes that does just sort of draw more attention, doesn't it, from your your average person? Mm, yeah, and I think uh, maybe we can also look at it from the um, uh, functional side of things you know in psychology we have uh, uh we look at the things from the uh survival point of view for example so human beings you know we are we are brought up in a way that we have to uh hunt you know and look for food and all that and it's either we either we hunt uh, we hunt the animals or the animals hunt us right so i think in such cases uh, it, it might have certain kind of these elements showing up you know so so the human beings, we have, we have the innate uh, emotion of fear, you know, just uh, showing up just by uh, just by listening to this uh, this uh, case. Right, and, and Dr. Lo, I mean, when we look at why people are so interested, um, do you think, in a way, to a certain extent, it's uh, related to how these stories are being covered in the media? Is that also a factor? Ah, yes, that's another great. Um, uh, perspe- perception, yes, because the the media, you know, um, plays a really uh, crucial role in terms of you know uh, showing us what's happening in the world, and uh, because people, you know, we are so into uh, the social media like Facebook or the media that's that's showing the the news online, you know, and we're always constantly being bombarded with this information. So it's like there's totally no way to. Uh, to run away from from being uh, being 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 seen with this this uh, case, Mr. Cox, uh, what's your view? Uh, how big a role uh, does the media play in this? Uh, I'm not going to mention in details of the case, of course, uh, but there is a lot of information in the news. Yeah, well, I think the doctor brings up uh, several very, very good points, you know, psychologically speaking. And of course, you know, I, I, many, many times, I guess, that's in the news media, even look at um, society, and, you know, the more primal instincts of society. And this is a great story uh, to, to really bring out this, this voyeuristic or sensationalistic interest from society and from the readers and from news consumers in general. And if we look very, very specifically at the details of this story and why it is so interesting, well, it pretty much offers 
everything that society and, and culture is very interested in. You know, it's a beautiful, popular young model, socialite and social media influencer. We have the financial disputes, which involves, you know, millions of uh, Hong Kong dollars, including luxury apartments. Um, there's, there's family intrigue and family dispute. It's a gruesome murder, big city life, a social elite. You know, there's, a, there's the, the, the potential of a daring speedboat escape. You know, the, only, the, the, the thing that's really missing in this, in this uh, entire kind of formula or this equation is, you know, politics. Um, but on top of that, we have a, a great setup for drama. We love drama. Um, true crime stories are incredibly popular in the news. It's one of the most uh, listened to formats when it comes to uh, when it comes to podcast. It's a great tabloid story, and, and it, it of course is going to attract the attention of not only Hong Kong listeners or Hong Kong readers, but this is a great global story. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. You could be in Melbourne, you could be in London, you could be in Nairobi, you could be in Tokyo, and it will still have the same kind of intrigue and some, still the same kind of interest um, of news consumers wherever we are. You know, in, in U.S. U.S. news media, we often refer to these kinds of stories that they are great water cooler stories. Uh, they're stories where you can, in the next morning at work, you, you stand around the water cooler and you have something to talk about. You know, the, you can start every conversation with, did you hear or can you believe these types of things that are, that are happening? And so that, that interest will continue um, throughout. Yeah, I think. All right. And, and Dr. Lowe, I, I know you need to rush off uh, to a lecture very soon, but before you do that, uh, can you just uh, quickly tell us um, um, about this uh, fast fascination about this uh, serious crime. Is this fascination about serious crime uh, unhealthy? And uh, um, what sort of impact will it have or possibly? And uh, what should we do if we feel traumatized by it? Right. Um, yeah, I think when, when we uh, look at this case over here, uh, we have to look at it from a various standpoint. And I think it's all about how we can maintain a good health of a person. And we have to look at uh, the biological aspects like whether um, a person is eating well. Is it because of the news that they have been exposed to and is causing them to not eat well and not doing enough exercise? You know, that's the biological aspect. And we also look at it from the psychological aspect, like how would they perceive this, uh, this news, right, after reading them or, or seeing some of the videos? And uh, it's really important, you know, for a person, you know, when they see the news, they have to be, uh, they have to be well validated, like in terms of how they perceive the news in terms of the emotions, right? Some, some people, they might overreact, you know, to this, to the case and, and, it, it, and, you know, emotions can escalate, you know, from one to another and negatively, you, it's like a spiral. It becomes a, like a fire, you know, uh, slowly it's just a, a spark and it might become a, a, bur a burning flame and suddenly it might be a huge explosion you know and we call it an emotional outburst so uh, so that's one part of it and i think the other part of it is uh, how how they how they would uh how, how we would you know um how, how we would perceive the emotions coming from the uh, victims as well, you know, so there's two sides of it and that's one one is how they perceive their own emotion towards the news and also how they would perceive the emotions of the victims and it's about uh, showing empathy actually. So that's the psychological aspects. Oh, and right. the next, yeah, it's so hopefully yeah, these tips can help, yeah. 
All right, so Dr. Lowe, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dr. Adrian Lowe, President of the Hong Kong Association of Psychology. You're listening to Backchat. Now, if you want to comment or ask our guest question, you can uh, leave us a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RCHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rchk.hk or call us on 233-88266. That's uh, 233-88266. Still with us on the line is senior journalism lecturer Dean Cox from Baptist University. And uh, joining us now is Sharon Fast, Deputy Director of the University of Hong Kong's Journalism and Media Studies Centre. Good morning to you, Ms. Fast. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so earlier we were talking about uh, why many people are fascinated about uh, cases of uh, serious crimes and uh, the role the media plays in all of this. Um, before we get your view on this, Ms. Fast, I have a message here from our listener, T.C. Jung. He says he's uh, surprised the um, Abby Choi story made it on uh, CNN because there are other things going on, such as uh, the war in Ukraine. He uh, goes on to say that people are interested in stories like this because uh, Hong Kongers are too into gossip. Another reason is that many Hong Kongers take joy in reading about how others in society, especially those who are famous, are suffering. Unfortunately, he says news like this are keeping the public's mind off some real social issues in Hong Kong. And uh, that comment is from T.C. Jung. So, um, Ms. Fast, uh, what's your view on this? Is it really because people like to gossip and hear about other people's suffering? Um, I, you know, I, I think it goes beyond, you know, just CNN coverage. This is a story that has sent shockwaves, not just throughout Hong Kong, but throughout Asia and the rest of the world. And I think there's different reasons for that beyond uh, Dean earlier spoke very, very correctly about all the ingredients, the celebrity, the wealth, the prominent families, and of course, the fact that it is a very kind of grisly and detailed case. But, you know, violent crime is still relatively rare in Hong Kong. Homicide is rare in Hong Kong. And I think these reasons cause people to be somewhat transfixed. Also, the level of details uh, that, you know, the kind of the magnitude of details that have been released over the course of several days. Uh, you know, this is a story that I've seen coverage in Estonia. It's, 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 it's going all over the world because of the kind of details and the very sensational type of, uh, you know, background to the story. So I, I think it's just something more than a particular uh, Hong Kong focus. This is global. I have been receiving messages from Canada from people who are interested in the story, what is happening in Hong Kong. But it's also important to remember that this is just the first stage of reporting. So where we are right now is in the breaking news stage. If we think about reporting on crime as having sort of three acts, the first act is always breaking news, where whether it's print or broadcast, journalists are under pressure. They have to gather accurate information under deadline. You have a series of very horrific details, and they have emerged over the initial days of this case. And many of those details have come from, you know, um, the police themselves in the course of a very active investigation. So breaking news coverage looks quite different from some of the more refined coverage that we might see later, feature coverage and what we call a sort of high-impact story concerning this case. You mentioned all the details that have already emerged. I mean, we, we have to remember that, that, that there's going to be a court case about this, isn't there? And in fact, in fact the suspects have... Um already been charged. Uh, we should mention here that uh, Sharon Fast uh, lectures actually on, on media law at the uh, 
uh, University of Hong Kong's Journalism and Media Studies Centre. Um, is it is it possible that the the current? I mean, how how do you get a jury to who are uncontaminated to to hear this case now? Everybody in Hong Kong knows about it. Yeah, that's going to be a, a very difficult uh, jury to impanel, definitely. Um, so, I mean, right now, um, you know, I mean, we should also draw the distinction between right now we're still in the stage of reporting on crime and not reporting on the courts. So everything is still publishable. Many students have reached out to me saying, how can this material be published? Um, you know, it, it is because of the general practice in Hong Kong is that we report on crimes and circumstances surrounding them, that this is journalists performing their duty to provide information to the public on ways in which crime uh, plays out in society, and this is important information. In terms of, uh, you know, when the reporting restrictions come into play a little bit later on, it's, it's going to be very difficult to, to really be able to ensure that um, the jury is not swayed by, you know, very impressive media accounts that have been coming out in very high pace right now. But Mr. Cox, uh, what is, uh, I mean, what's your view? I mean, do you think uh, crime reporting practices is uh, changing? I mean, I, I remember seeing uh, a newspaper with uh, photos of these suspects uh, published on it. Uh, I mean, and there were, there were very clear pictures that uh, they were not covered in any way. Yeah. Um, uh, maybe Mr. Cox? Well, yes. Um, uh, well... There, there are, of course, ethical and moral implications uh, how news media cover different types of events. Um, you know, if we, if we can even think back back to the Jack the Ripper years in the late 1800s. I mean, those were grisly reported uh, murders and it kept London uh, intrigued and, uh, and excited, I guess, about the, the, the weekly or monthly updates. Um, when we are considering, or if you're talking specifically about how do we report, or what do we show, or what do we discuss, or what is presented, um, well, first of all, there are legal implications, and Sharon can probably talk about that much more than I can, uh, uh, considering the jurisdiction of Hong Kong. So there are certain things that, of course, probably shouldn't be reported or couldn't be reported, um, as far as visualizing the crime scene or the murder scene or showing different types of uh, um, evidence, well, probably most of that won't come out until until the court cases anyway. Um, and I guess once those are presented within court, then it's pretty much uh, fair and open game for the news media to, to publish what it is that they they feel is, is necessary to publish to, to inform the public. Now, whether or not we think, um, you know, the public or news media consider it of actually any considerable interest and important for for, for society to learn exactly all of the gruesome details. Um, each news media organization will eventually decide that on its own. You, you were saying there's, there's certain things that, that couldn't be reported or, or shouldn't be reported. Actually, let's, let's take that back to Sharon Fast because we're, we're not seeing much signs of restraint by the news media, are we, Sharon Fast? I, 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 um, and, Right. Um, you know, we're not. Uh, we're definitely not seeing that restraint. Uh, it, every detail seems to be a detail too far. But uh, in terms of the, the kind of graphic nature of those details, I can say that the general practice by Hong Kong media when they report on crime and the surrounding circumstances is that until something that is known as a committal procedure, now a committal procedure is not the first appearance of the accused uh, in the courts. It's not even where the accused is remanded, as we know several uh, of the accused individuals in this case are on remand. Um, it's the proceedings where, which take place when the prosecution applies to transfer the case. 
So in this case, it will be transferred to the court of first instance of the high court. And that committal procedure, is it will trigger something called the subjudice period. And that subjudice period is the time when journalists really need to exercise caution in their reporting. It means the matter is imminent. It's before the court. You will have a trial date set down. And anything reported during that period of imminence can, if it's a coverage that would influence a jury, it can make media organizations vulnerable, vulnerable to charges of contempt of court. And this is because in order to ensure the rights of those individuals who are accused and to ensure that the presumption of innocence is maintained, they have the right to fair trial, that the jury should not be swayed by media accounts of this crime. So at present, yes, you're right, we don't see the restraint, and that could be because of this general practice. Um, But again, I think it's a case that we're going to have to watch very closely. Uh, It's not the first sensational case that has occurred in Hong Kong, and it's certainly, um, you know, not, uh, you know, probably not the last, but other cases, uh, other very prominent cases have managed to, and panel juries have managed mm-hmm. to, you know, you can have judicial instructions, uh, you, can, you can inform and instruct juries, uh, other nations, other jurisdictions, rather, uh, New Zealand has a law, for example, that juries aren't allowed to conduct any kind of investigation or to look on social media, and judges will be very strict about you know, what should be done in terms of reporting at the trial itself or what the jury should be able to um, access or not access, as the case may be. You, you raise a good point there. And, and presumably, of course, actually a uh, full court hearing with a jury trial is a long way. It might be easily a year or so away, mightn't it? Um, yes, yeah. And how would you um, compare the the interest over this case we're talking about today uh, to other cases in the past? For, for example, a milkshake murder some 20 years ago or, or even a... Even earlier, the uh, the Hello Kitty uh, murder case. Yeah, we have uh, the, everything from Henry Chow to Hello Kitty. Uh, level of interest, I think right now, um, it's to me, it doesn't stand out. Uh, you, you mentioned the Milkshake Murderess, the Nancy Kissel case. Uh, we also have Rurik Jatig. Those were cases very, very widely covered in international media. So this case at present, you know, to me doesn't stand out in terms of international coverage. It is another Hong Kong case that has a lot of spectacular details and, um, and you know, has drawing interest. And again, that could be the traditional low homicide rate in Hong Kong, the fact that you have a celebrity, uh, that you have an influencer, someone who's very prominent. So there's, you know, there's something uh, very visual about this case as well. But this celebrity is not known outside Hong Kong, so you can understand it influencing coverage in Hong Kong, but there's no reason for it to attract more international attention um, because she's a celebrity in Hong Kong. Well, I think it's a focus of the reporting globally, though. I mean, there's a lot of pictures available. I mean, there's, you know, she's not an unknown person, is my point. So for media who are reporting either from UK or Canada, they are very easily available to find out more about her. She has a very public profile, and whether that profile is limited to Hong Kong, once newsrooms globally start looking at her, her public profile is very easy to access and disseminate. Right. And Mr. Cox, um, this interest over um, serious murder cases uh, is not just uh, in Hong Kong. I mean, uh, just in general around the world, people are interested in serious uh, crime cases. Do you think this is a a trend looking ahead? I mean, will uh, reporting of crime become even more sensationalized in future? Um, More sensationalized? 
that's, I think it's always been sensationalized. As I you know, already said, you know, the Jack the Ripper case, if we think of the kidnap and murder of the Charles Lindbergh baby, I mean, those were also covered extensively. The O.J. Simpson double murders and trial covered extensively. You know, this is, this is not necessarily a, a, a contemporary trend or anything different. I don't think that it will uh, be any different in the future. The interest will always be there for sure. As long as these types of sensationalized murder cases or other crimes uh, happen, they will continue to to be popular. And as I said already before, um, you know, currently podcasts, true crime podcasts, are one of the most popular listened to and downloaded podcasts, especially in the English speaking world. Um, I don't know how much it is uh, here locally, but that that may continue. That may even grow uh, here in Hong Kong or in, in East Asia as well. All right, so Mr. Cox, hold your thought there for a moment, sir, because we have to take a short break for the news. We can, of course, continue our discussion afterwards when we will be joined by King Min Chung, a registered therapist. And after 9.45, we'll find out what concerns green groups have in the wake of the scrapping of Hong Kong's mask mandate. If you have any comments or questions for our guests today, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RCHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rchk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now, here's a quick look at the weather. Fine and dry during the day with a top temperature of around 23 degrees. Winds moderate to fresh easterlies, occasionally strong offshore. And uh, the outlook, mainly fine and dry over the weekend. Right now, it's 18 degrees, relative humidity, 78%. It's now 9.30. With a new summary, here's Carol Musgrave. A school principal says an air of normality returned to campus yesterday as Hong Kong enjoyed its first day without a mask mandate in two and a half years. Dion Chen, who heads Yinghua College and chairs the Direct Subsidy Scheme Schools Council, said he observed that most people wore masks to travel but took them off in school. The hospital authority says inspections are underway at Tunmun Hospital after a ceiling hoist track used to carry patients broke yesterday evening. The authority received a report that the external cover of one of the ceiling hoist tracks in one of the hospital's wards fell. No one was injured. And Greece's prime minister has blamed what he called tragic human error for being the main cause of the country's worst rail disaster. Kyriakos Mitsotakis had earlier visited the site of Tuesday's head-on collision between two trains near the city of Larissa. I'll have more news at 10. Drainage repairs can be costly. The Building Drainage System Repair Subsidy Scheme run by the Government and the Urban Renewal Authority offers financial assistance of up to 80% of total drainage repair costs to owners of eligible buildings. The buildings must be aged 40 or above, with or without statutory orders related to common drains. Call 3188-1188 for details. Railways and major roads that link the urban areas and new development areas are closely related to our economy and livelihood. To meet future development and logistics needs, the government has launched the Strategic Studies on Railways and Major Roads Beyond 2030 to create a major transport infrastructure blueprint for Hong Kong. You are welcome to share your views on the proposed schemes on or before March 31st, 2023. Visit rmr2030plus.hk for more. 
Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Danny Gittings and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the line is Dean Cox, Senior Journalism Lecturer at Baptist University, and Sharon Fast, the Deputy Director of the University of Hong Kong's Journalism and Media Studies Centre. Dean Cox, I mean, one feature of the uh, press coverage this week has been a, a great focus on which particular body parts have been found where and in the sort of the most lurid possible details. I, I've seen some criticism on social media saying that this really is, is gratuitous and um, is sort of feeding to the uh, lowest possible denominator. I wonder your views on that. Um, yeah, I would agree. I think that it's a bit too too much. And I think Sharon also made some interesting points that if um, too much is being uh, reported um, to, to the public, then we do start running into complications and problems when we start reaching the court case. Um, now, you know, of course, these are things that we tried to teach in our journalism classes. We, we you know, want, want students, uh, journalism students, to be respectful of, of the, newer, the, the news stories that they are covering and how they treat subjects who they are covering. Um, but eventually, you know, news media organizations, and they are driven by, by often uh, financial reasons. They are businesses, more or less. Um, and, of course, they're trying to get eyeballs on news sites, on Broadcast. They're trying to get readers to, to pick up their newspapers. Um, so they're assuming that uh, your average reader actually wants to know these gruesome details. I mean, maybe I'm squeamish. I, I actually turn away from some of the coverage when it starts going into, into great detail about which sure. particular body parts are, are, are aware. But um, they, they, they're assuming that their average, your average reader is reversed, that that's actually what they want to read then. Well, I guess I guess that can eventually be determined by the the economics, right? If they see that they're selling more newspapers, that there are more people, uh, you know, clicking on of the uh, the headlines, then I guess that uh, speaks volumes in itself. Sharon Fast, do you have any views on this more the, this more gruesome side of the coverage? Right. I think, I mean, it again refers to the sort of what I call the three acts of reporting. The first act of reporting on crime, the first act um, is really those breaking stories, and those are details being given to the media right now as the active investigation unfolds. But we're also starting to get to the point where we're almost in the second act now where we can think about feature coverage, so more in-depth reporting. Uh, And I have seen some. I've seen some locally, and I've seen some internationally. And this is you know, reporting that is victim-centric. So it's a story that would put the victim and their life story first, and it focuses less on the lurid details and much less on the perpetrators and the background of the perpetrators. So that is what I would call Act 2. Um, my, you know, I, I think what's most important for, for the reporting on this case and the direction I'd like to see it take in terms of a high-impact Act 3 is that this case should move past these grisly details. It needs to open up wider public discussion into conversations surrounding violence against women in Hong Kong, also family violence. So mm-hmm. this case could you know, pivot and I think develop into something more meaningful. Do you think we'll see that sort of coverage before the court case? I mean, what often happens, of course, with, with these kind of crimes is that um, uh, journalists prepare stories for publication after the verdict, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Um, and well, those publications can also be, you know, they, they want to interview, um, you know, some kind of uh, friends of the perpetrators, for example. So they don't want to uh, in any way, you know, um, sway the minds of the jury. But, you know, public policy discussions, discussions about these, you know, uh, what we know from the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, for example, uh, these discussions of homicide rates by gender, these types of cases, um, you, you know, there, there is definitely still space 
for those types of discussions that won't directly refer to the murder in a way that could potentially interfere with the administration of justice. And looking ahead also, I mean, the court case is a long way off, but in the court case, I mean, then then reporters are subject to reporting restrictions, but they can report anything that is is said in open court. And um, presumably you'll see the grisly detail. I mean, it will have to be part of the court case. The grisly details will be coming out again in the in open court, and so you'll presumably have another series of lurid headlines then. Is that a reasonable assumption? Yeah, that's a reasonable assumption. Um, anything that is said in the witness box in front of the jury is reportable. Uh, however, the, the caveat to that is, of course, um, ensuring that students have solid ethical foundations where they understand that, you know, there's a level of compassion and a level of, you know, something that's too graphic or too lurid uh, that that they have the common sense to understand that although technically, you know, the rule is anything that's said in the witness box can be reported on, when it comes to these types of details, and it's not just homicide cases, it's also true of cases involving sexual assault, it is not good practice simply to quote what is said by individuals in who are testifying in court. So... It, you know, it, it, it's it's something that goes beyond this particular case, but um, needs to go into a deeper development of ethical best practice and crime coverage and reporting from the courts more generally. And this is not so much about the media per se. It's, it's, the trial is also going to be an immensely unpleasant experience for the jury, aren't they? I mean, we can say maybe reporters <laughs> can um, exercise discretion about what to report, but the, the jury who are going to have to sit through all this. Yeah, they will indeed. Um, and again, I think we, we need to look back to how the jury was dealt with in some of the recent very high-profile cases uh, and maybe give consideration to whether there's psychological support for members of the jury. And, um, you know, th- this is something that I think goes beyond legal expertise and starts to go into, you know, what the court can provide, what the court can can do for members of this jury who will be, you know, in their civic duty, sitting in a court for no doubt weeks and weeks on end, hearing these types of details and how do they, how do they process them without, um, you know, a continued trauma, so to speak. And when we look at the um, the coverage of uh, the story or other serious crime stories, we, we see like different uh, newspapers, media organizations, they're sort of competing in, in terms of the amount of detail they provide uh, in, in, in terms of uh, um, their headlines. Um, looking at, do you think this uh, development is really, uh, it's unhealthy for the media industry? Ms. Voss? Um, yeah, I mean, I think so. You're you're referring to you know the the race to the bottom, I suppose, right? Um, the the additional details uh, uh, provided that are of a very kind of graphic, grisly nature. Uh, I, I I will have to say that you know um, you know th- there's an appetite for almost all of this coverage. Um, that is just something that is a societal phenomenon. But um, we shouldn't look to the worst-case examples to understand how this case can be reported in a more meaningful way. That, of course, eyes are driven to uh, the sort of more tabloid-style, less sensitive coverage. But it's, you know, we, we shouldn't forget that there's also some very, very thoughtful and impactful coverage right now that is 
taking the victim-centric approach and that is being sensitive to, uh, you know, the surviving members of, of the family here. All right, so Ms. Foss, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Sharon Foss, Senior Lecturer and Deputy Director at the University of Hong Kong's Journalism and Media Studies Centre. Many thanks also to Dean Cox, Senior Journalism Lecturer at Baptist University. And uh, before we move on, let's go back briefly to our topic yesterday about transgender youth, because uh, we had a lot of comments that unfortunately we couldn't read out at the time because of uh, technical issues we had as a result of moving to another studio temporarily. Here are some of the comments we got we got in brief. If you want to read all the comments, please go to our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Steve wrote, the UK experience suggests that some trans activists advocate the transition of vulnerable children. An independent, comprehensive system of checks and balances must exist involving parents. And uh, Jeremy said and the Education Bureau must take steps to stop gender-affirming ideology from permeating Hong Kong schools, particularly in international schools. No child should be subjected to gender-affirming without parental consent and involvement of a qualified psychiatrist. I hope the Bureau will issue clarification by which all international schools must abide. And Dan left a quote from the executive director of the American College of Pediatricians, saying transgender ideology is not just infecting our laws. It is intruding into the lives of the most innocent among us, children with the apparent growing support of the professional medical community. Today's institutions that promote transition affirmation are pushing children to impersonate the opposite sex, sending many of them down the path of puberty blockers, sterilization, the removal of healthy body parts, and untold psychological damage. And also several of you wondered why no messages were read out. It's because we couldn't see them until much later on. But the issue has been fixed and we'll also look to pick up the discussion where we left off at a later date. It's now 9.42 and it's time to move on to the other big story of the week, uh, the removal of the uh, mask mandate and to find out what concerns green groups have in the uh, wake of the scrapping of Hong Kong's mask mandate. What are we going to do with all those masks we all still have stocked? Uh, and we'll do that right after this. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Well, yesterday was the first day Hong Kong people could go mask-free in public. This is, of course, good news. And now green groups say people should focus their attention somewhere else. To find out more, we're joined on the line by Patrick Fung, the Chief Executive Officer of Clean Air Network, and Beatrice Sue, Senior Public Affairs Officer from Greeners Action. Good morning, Mr. Fung. Hi, morning. And uh, good morning, Monsieur. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. So, um, Monsieur, first of all, um, with the mask mandate scrapped, I guess uh, fewer people will use face masks. So uh, what are you so worried about? Uh, actually, we have uh, done a survey on 2020, and we discovered that uh, Hong, Kong people, Hong Kong people actually used about uh, 54 uh, million uh, facial masks every week. So uh, we actually estimate that uh, for Hong Kong people during um, the pandemic uh, in February, during February and November in 2020, they've already used um two billion of facial masks. And after three years of the pandemic, we estimate that 8.6 billion of facial masks were used. And they're not easily recyclable, are they? 
they just go into general waste. Yes, they yes they do because、um, they're actually quite complicated. You see that as a mask, they have three different layers, and then they have、uh, kind of the strings at the ear. So they actually compose of different types of materials, but mainly they are composed of PP plastic, which is very hard to recycle. Of course, the government did distribute、uh, recyclable or washable masks, but no one、mm-hmm. seemed to wear them apart from Carrie Lam, as far as I can remember. Quite true.、Um, I think that we have been promoting、uh, the use of、um, reusable facial masks for many years, and we saw that people are actually getting more used to that.、Uh, we think that it's、uh, we worth promoting it because、uh, if, after we've seen figures during the years, we think that it is a time for people、uh, to develop a habit of using the reusable facial mask. I think you're also worried, aren't you, about people dumping their remaining stuff? I mean, we've all got boxes of masks、uh, stacked up all over the, our homes,、um, um, and you're worried about people dumping their their, their their supply of unused masks. Quite true. Actually, if you、uh, just observe around、uh, around us during these three years,、uh, we saw that、um, people, some people, are actually dumping the facial masks in different. Places like, for example, in in country parks, and、uh, even though for everyone you compose,、uh, you you may dispose your facial mask in your rubbish bin, and you see that actually it comes to uh, health uh,、um, uh, health risks because、uh, facial masks actually they have virus and different types of germs or whatever. So if you just、um, dispose it out outside somewhere else on the street or maybe the country park. Actually, it has a health concern as well. And after the、uh, the, the government announced that you can take off your facial mask, that's what we are worried about. Is that I think a lot of people they have accumulated a large number of facial masks during these three years, and so that's why we、uh, when we knew that the government made the announcement, we just worried that people might have these kind of、uh, thoughts on their mind. So that's why we send out a reminder to let people know that you have other choices. For example. If you have abundant number of、uh, facial masks, you can think about sending it to somewhere else、uh, to people in need. For example, like the elderly center or the rehabilitation center, which I think those people were、uh, they have much more needs on the facial mask. And if you have really purchased a large number of facial masks, just use them all, and you think about whether you still keep buying or you just、um, buy a small number of facial masks. But We are not actually asking people to wear it or not, but we have to tell people that it's up to your choice. You may wear it in the、uh, high-risk area, for example, like hospital or or maybe elderly center that you think they have higher、uh, risk of getting、uh, infected of the COVID. All right,、uh, all right.、Uh, let, let's go to Mr. Fong for a moment. Um, we just heard from Miss Sue. She's worried that people will、uh, throw away their、um, stockpile of masks.、Uh, so, what is your concern? So our concern is about indoor air quality for all buildings in Hong Kong, especially for schools. So right now, I think、uh, after a couple of years of time when every school student has to、uh, wear mask,、uh, basically the development of the respiratory or immune system has been affected. But then right now we do not see a strengthened、um, regulations on the indoor air quality (IAQ)、uh, within schools. So. Uh, our worry is that、um, uh, number one, the、uh, indoor air pollution would affect health and learning ability of the students, and secondly, it could enhance the、um, chance of getting long COVID. 
And then thirdly, uh, we might not be able to prevent other viral transmission. So these are the couple of worries we are having. But so why, what, can you explain a bit more about why we should focus more on indoor quality and now that we don't have to wear masks? I mean, it's not that uh, um, face masks used to provide us with uh, clean air. Uh, it doesn't. Uh, but then I think it is a trigger for educators as well as parents. Uh, from our uh, six-month study we are having right now. Our general observation is that uh, we understand uh, the school management as well as the parents, uh, they want to improve the indoor air quality of the, um, the schools and the classroom, but then they lack of the know-how. So there are no equipment provided. And then uh, basically in um, a lot of schools, uh, the air quality is not managed. So this is um, the time for us uh, to let more people understand the situation of uh, unmanaged and regulated indoor air quality in Hong Kong. But I'm not sure the air quality has got any worse in these schools than it was three years ago before we wore masks. I mean, um, children have been sitting in these classrooms for years with the uh, the same air quality, right? It's just that uh, the last few years were a abnormality that we wore masks for health reasons. Indeed, but the situation is that um, there's not uh, any kind of uh, monitoring equipment installed extensively in all classrooms in Hong Kong. So our point is that uh, it's time for us to rethink uh, what else we should do after, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, putting the mask off? It is time to also look at the indoor environment. Basically, in Hong Kong, there were one-fourth of the primary school located at close proximity to the traffic roads. But then none of these schools are installed with the um, robust level of monitoring equipment to understand the indoor air quality situation. So there's a strong likelihood that uh, because of the outdoor air pollution or because of indoor air pollution sources, uh, this kind of uh, sources would um, uh, actually affect the, uh, uh, the health and then learning ability of the children and also the school staff. So are you recommending that school children should continue to wear masks until that kind of air, air quality assessments are done? Uh, I think we should look at the uh, deep-rooted problem. So uh, right now, um, the uh, EPD has actually issued a guideline for IAQ for schools and elderly homes. But as far as we know, uh, the school management, the headmaster, uh, are not aware about that. So we think the education bureau should coordinate the school. And then secondly, there is no health-based uh, indoor air quality guideline or standard for school. So the school doesn't know uh, where they are heading to. And then thirdly, uh, we think that Education Bureau as well as the EBD uh, should find ways to support the schools to conduct 24-7 uh, IAQ monitoring and reporting system. And if the situation is found unsatisfactory, uh, perhaps the government should provide um, resources for the schools to implement a range of specific mitigation measures. But none of this uh, has been discussed so far. Right. Uh, so do we have to, I mean, do schools have to wait for the government to help them check their, their indoor air quality? Is there anything the schools can do to just uh, improve their own uh, indoor air quality? Um, we do have a vision to achieve the cleanest schools for whole Hong Kong. We are working with the academia to install a robust, sense, uh, robust sensing uh, network in uh, a couple of uh, primary schools as a pilot at the moment. So uh, we understand that there are needs from uh, all 1,000 primary and secondary schools in Hong Kong, but we are at a uh, starting phase. But we are, we are happy to help. But uh, indeed, uh, I think um, the intervention from government would accelerate the process to Hong Kong with that ability to, man to monitor the um, indoor air quality level in their own school campus.
All right. So let's uh, go back to Miss Sue. Miss Sue? Yes. Hi. Earlier you talked about uh, how um, you, you wanted to remind people to maybe donate their extra masks to uh, people in need, like a elderly home. Um, what about recycling? Is it possible to recycle unused uh, face masks? Um, actually, it is uh, quite hard to recycle. As I said just now, that it's uh, composed of different types of materials. For example, like uh, the strips made of uh, metals and also the mainly made of PP plastic, which is very hard to compose. And so we think it's quite hard to recycle. And I think the government should take the lead of uh, managing kind of recycling system. If you look into some of the uh, examples in, uh, for, for example, like UK or maybe in Australia, that actually some companies there um, working with some recycling um, maybe companies or maybe recycle, uh, recycling organizations there's kind of programs that they set up some collection points or collection boxes in um, different areas for example like shopping arcades and then people just recycle whatever uh, kind of facial masks they've used into, into that collection box and then these used facial masks were sent to um, they have different types of um, uh, the asset uh, sterilizing the, the germs, for example, like probably like ultraviolet or maybe different types of ways to, um, to make it clean. And then they turn into some uh, useful plastic materials and use it for maybe uh, building materials or uh, maybe for some plastic uh, other maybe like stationary or different types of usage. So we think that it's a way to upcycle the, um, the facial mask. And then this, this can be done. And I think the Hong Kong government can take the lead on doing so. Now, Mr. Yu, realistically, as we've seen on public transport, uh, a, high, a high percentage of Hong Kong people are going to continue to wear masks. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, people might well be uh, open to environmental considerations about what masks they buy. I mean, I wonder if you have any recommendations. I imagine you'd be particularly opposed to those masks that are individually plastic wrapped, which obviously creates far, far, far more waste. Is any, any tips for people who want to continue to wear masks, but at the same time would like to choose masks in a way that uh, minimizes environmental impact? Uh, if you look into uh, our research in 2020, we've actually listed out 20 types of, uh, of a facial masks which you can buy in different shops. And we see that they have different uh, types of functions and they have composed of different types of materials. And you may take a look at it. And our advice is uh, try to use a reusable facial mask and they will be more environmentally friendly. And if you really have uh, needs of going to somewhere high risk, for example, like hospital and elderly centre, you may think about wearing the surgical mask. Yes, because of course reusable masks tend to be less effective, don't they? Uh, not necessarily, but uh, that's what we suggest that, uh, for uh, better protection. And you may think about using a surgical mask. But in fact, when we look into the, uh, the research in 2020, actually the, uh, the facial mask, the reusable facial mask can up to uh, quite a high standard. So, uh, but it's up to people's choice to whether they would like to take the re- reusable facial mask or just surgical mask they have bought. All right. And Mr. Fung, um, earlier you were talking about uh, how uh, we should focus our t- attention on how to improve uh, the indoor air quality at schools. I mean, mm-hmm. are, are there other places that we should focus on, for example, like offices? Yeah, indeed. Um, offices as well as uh, elderly homes and also all the public uh, buildings. Uh, Taking an example, so right now the EPD has a voluntary 
uh, Indoor Air Quality Certification, certification Scheme. And then uh, among uh, around 50,000 buildings in Hong Kong, there are only like 2,000 premises um, have uh, applied for that certification, which means that a lot of buildings in Hong Kong have not um, either certified or they have not really checked uh, the indoor air quality uh, within their premises. You're, you're, you're talking about indoor air quality here, Mr. Fung, but I mean, the outdoor air quality on the roads will be even worse. And um, the, the way things are going, I mean, since now masks are no longer required, people are more, actually more likely to wear masks indoors because more chance of catching respiratory disease indoors than take off their masks outdoors, which will expose them to the uh, traffic fumes that they've been avoiding for the last few years. Yeah, indeed. I think uh, both uh, outdoor and indoor air quality has really tackled. The EPD has published a report about how um, air quality has achieved um, 10 years best uh, uh, in February. Uh, uh, they're talking about uh, 2022 data. But then for us is that uh, we're still miles ahead uh, until we uh, achieve the WHO most stringent guideline. It's personal choice for people uh, whether to wear masks or not. But then uh, if it's from the public point of view or from the government, a rose point of view, they should have um, uh, the authority and then have to, uh, uh, have, have, have the role to provide a clean air environment for everybody, no matter if it's outdoor or indoor. So would you recommend people to continue to wear masks in, in environments where there's, there's, there's not clean air, including outdoors? It's really up to personal choice, but then uh, I think we, we should um, uh, look at the, the deep-rooted problem, so which is the emission sources, uh, how we can accelerate transition to, uh, for example, uh, zero emission transport, as well as how we look at the transport management in Hong Kong. A lot of our cities, in addition to uh, wearing masks and wearing masks, they're looking at how to improve the overall well-being uh, of the outdoor environment as well. So these are a couple of things that I think right now uh, we should also look into. Right. And uh, over the past few years, uh, Mr. Fung, did you did um, Clean Air Network, Network have a chance to uh, actually look at the um, indoor air quality of, of different places? I mean, has that changed much? I mean, do you have any uh, studies or any any figures on that? To work with uh, university. Uh, and then to look at uh, the IAQ in, in the schools, as mentioned. And then in general, we found that um, the indoor air quality would, uh, would be, uh, you know, uh, uh, would be a diversified situation according to their uh, specific environment. And it also depends uh, on the outdoor air quality. And basically what we found out is that um, the indoor air quality of different premises are depending on two factors. Number one, uh, the rate of um, pollution accumulation, and number two, the rate of uh, pollution dispersion. So uh, it means that uh, the ventilation system is important, but then how we are going to uh, block the penetration uh, of the outdoor pollution into indoor is important as well. And then uh, we do not um, recommend people uh, to um, uh, produce indoor air pollution as well. Uh, for example, uh, indoor smoking. And so these are a couple of things that we found initially after around six months of uh, study. All right, Mr. Fung, I'm afraid we're out of time. We have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Patrick Fung, the Chief Executive Officer of Clean Air Network. Many thanks also to Beatrice Sue, Senior Public Affairs Officer of Greeners Action. And also many thanks to you who commented or emailed us today and, of course, to our guest presenter, Danny Gittings, and producer, Kaha. I'll be back with another edition of Backchat tomorrow with Andrew Work.